0: Christus et Ego, Christ and I. Spurgeon launches into this week's featured sermon from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 with only several sentences by way of introduction. At once to our work, he says. It's another reminder to us that sermons don't need a a carefully constructed and elaborate introduction in order to be effective. Here he simply says that we're trying to climb up to uh, a great summit of sublimity and we need to just press on to do as much as we can with the time that he has available to us. He wants us to consider here then the personality of the Christian religion as it is exhibited in the text before us. That text is, "'I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me.' And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Sermon 781 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. And what's interesting about the, the first point here is that Spurgeon really is just walking through his text again and again. He does it in the first point. He does it in the second point. It's uh, less evident in the third, but it's very much a a fully textual sermon. He's really wrestling with the meaning of the words. His first emphasis is on then those personal pronouns. Are there not as many as eight? It swarms with I and me, he says. The text deals not with the plural at all. It does not mention someone else nor a third party far away, but the apostle treats of himself, his own inner life, his own spiritual death, the love of Christ to him and the great sacrifice which Christ made for him, the one who loved me and gave himself for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. This, says our preacher, is instructive, for it is a distinguishing mark of the Christian religion that it brings out a man's individuality. It does not make us selfish, on the contrary, it cures us of that evil, but still it does manifest in us a selfhood by which we become conscious of our personal individuality in an eminent degree. Now, it's worth remembering that, historically, Spurgeon might be considered a romantic, with a capital R, and so an emphasis on the individual, which would have been typical uh, culturally, and spiritually at that time is going to be present in his work. He's not entirely immune in that sense any more than any one of us to the spirit of the age. But it's interesting that, that this is something then that he's trying to demonstrate as having a proper place in the scriptures. And of course he's absolutely right in saying that it is present. Men think of themselves, he says, as mixed up with the race or swamped in the community or absorbed in universal manhood. They have a very indistinct idea of their separate or individual obligations to God and their personal relations to his go- government. But the gospel, like a telescope, brings a man out to himself, makes him see himself as a separate existence and compels him to meditate upon his own sin, his own salvation and his own personal doom unless saved by grace. So Spurgeon's point then is not that there is no uh, communal, that there is no corporate aspect to our religion, but he is emphasizing the individual aspect, the personal nature of the relationship that every believer bears to Jesus Christ. Certainly, beloved hearer, he says, you know nothing about salvation unless you have personally looked with your own eye to Jesus Christ there must be a personal reception of the Lord Jesus into the arms of your faith and into the bosom of your love and if you have not trusted in the crucified while standing alone in contemplation at the foot of the cross you have not believed unto life eternal. So the solidarity of true Christianity is a solidarity first of all with you as a person with Christ as a person. So in consequence of this separate or individual personal faith, the believer enjoys a personal peace. He can speak about it, but he cannot fully communicate it. You can't give it to him and you cannot take it from him. It is his because he is in Christ. And with that goes a personal consecration. The renewed man feels that the work of others does not exonerate him from service and that the general lukewarmness of the Christian church cannot be an excuse for his own indifference. Spurgeon says, I believe that in proportion as our piety is definitely in the first person singular, it will be strong and vigorous. I believe, moreover, that in proportion as we fully realise our personal responsibility to God, shall we be likely to discharge it. But if we have not really understood it, we are very likely to dream of work for God by proxy, to pay the priest or the minister to be useful for us, and act as if we could shift our responsibility from our own shoulders to the back of a society or a church. We preach, he says, personal election, personal calling, personal regeneration, personal perseverance, personal holiness, and we know nothing of any work of grace which is not personal to the professor of it. So he's emphasising here something that we still need to grasp today, that I cannot slope my shoulders and just pass off my responsibilities to a group or to another individual. When a man is typically buried with Christ by the public act of baptism, he cannot be dead for another or buried for another, nor can he rise again instead of another. It's a personal act of immersion to show forth our personal death to the world, our personal burial with Christ and personal resurrection with him. So here is our individual relationship again. How many church members shelter themselves behind the vigorous action of the entire community? The church is being increased. The church opens schools. The church builds new houses of prayer. And so the church member flatters himself that he's doing something whereas that very man may not have, either by his contributions or his prayers or his personal teachings, done anything at all. So, when you are baptised upon profession of faith, having come into personal union with Jesus Christ, you are then acting for yourself before God within the community. And you cannot assume that because others are acting, that therefore you need not act, again, there's this tension that there is between, on the one hand, the holy solidarity of the whole community and the fact that every member within it needs to be healthy and vigorous. Oh, idle church member, he says, I beseech you, shake yourself from the dust, be not so mean, so low, as to appropriate other men's labors before your own master you shall stand or fall upon your own individual service or neglect and if you bring forth no fruit yourself all the fruit upon the other boughs shall not avail you the emphasis here then in this sermon is on the, that responsibility and that accountability that we have individually and Spurgeon says and and, and tragically it's happening as much today as it did then that it's common for people to shelter themselves behind a society. I think one of the dangers today, especially in some of those bigger churches where everybody's talking about those who are on staff, to use the American phrase, you end up with a lot of people who are being paid to do something and it, I think it underlines the voluntary, undermines the voluntary principle. It takes away from the sense that the whole body is meant to be serving together. So, says Spurgeon, it's well to support the minister. It's well to pay the city missionary that he may have his time to give to needful work. It's well to assist the Bible woman that she may go from house to house. But remember... When all the societies have done all that is possible, they cannot exonerate you from your own peculiar calling. And however large your contributions to assist others to serve the master, they cannot discharge on your behalf one single particle of what was due from you personally to your Lord. Let me pray you, he means plead with you, brothers and sisters, if you've ever sheltered behind the work of others, stand forth in your own proper character and remember that before God you must be estimated by what you have felt, by what you have known, by what you have learned and by what you have done. So let's let's make sure then that we don't assume that because others are doing something that we can just ride on their coattails. He says it's, it's, it's a fatal mistake with regard to family piety or national religion that it could stand in the place of individual repentance and faith. Is a man a Christian because he lives in England? Is a rat a horse because it lives in a stable? That's just as good reasoning. A man must be born again, or he is no child of God. Again, this is such an important point, even today. So often we have people who think that because they've been born in a certain family, born in a certain country, born into a certain community, that's what makes them right with God. No, says Spurgeon, a man must have living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or else he is no Christian. And he does but mock the name of Christian when he takes it upon himself without having part or lot in the matter. Don't play the fool, says Spurgeon, with eternal things. Don't imagine that uh, because of your family connections, because of your, uh, your, your church affiliations, that you therefore have security you must have a personal interest in Christ. And then he says, let us aspire to give to him who deserves it so well, our personal service, rendering spirit, soul, and body unto his cause. So the emphasis here from Galatians 2 and verse 20 is the personality of the Christian religion, the individuality of true faith, true repentance, true peace, true consecration, uh, true identification with Christ and with his people. It is not enough to just go with the flow, to attach yourself to the crowd, to take cover in the group activity. You must yourself be a true child of God and walking in his ways. Beyond that then, says Spurgeon, secondly, the text very plainly teaches us the interweaving of our own proper personality with that of Jesus Christ. And again, he's going to dig down into the individual words and phrases of the text. He says, when you read it over again, there's the man and there's the Son of God, two personalities, conspicuously evident and singularly interwoven. They are joined together. There was one parent man who threw his shadow across our path, he says, and from whose influence we could never escape. So what he's reminding us here is that as in Adam, so now in Christ. From all other men we might have struggled away and claimed to be separate, but this one man was part of ourselves and we part of him. Adam the first in his fallen state. We are fallen with him and are broken in pieces in his ruin. And now, glory be to God, as the shadow of the first man has been uplifted from us, there appears a second man, the Lord from heaven, and across our path there falls the light of his glory and his excellence, from which also, blessed be God, we who have believed in him cannot escape. In the light of that man, the second Adam, the heavenly federal head of all his people, in his light do we rejoice." And, says Spurgeon, I want you then to see the points of contact between you and the Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam. I want you to understand what it means for you to be interwoven with him. Now, that language of interweaving, you might say that uh, if you're a, a, a theological precisionist in a certain sense, you might say, well, that's not as careful or as specific as it could or should be. Yes, I I appreciate that there are some dangers in using the language of an interwoven personality, but, but let's follow along and see what Spurgeon is trying to communicate. So, the points of contact all come from the text. First of all, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. He means that in the representation of Christ on the cross, That when Christ hung upon the tree, he did not hang there as a private person, but as the representative of all his chosen people. So there again, you've got the solidarity with Christ, even though you have the individuality of the believer. The apostle of the Gentiles delighted to think that as one of Christ's chosen people, he died upon the tree in Christ. He did more than believe this doctrinally, however. He accepted it confidently resting his hope upon it. The same would be true with regard to the, the resurrection. We'll come on to that, but it's union with the suffering, bleeding Savior, faith in the merit of the Redeemer. these are for, These are soul-cheering things, and we ought to take enjoyment in them. And now he says, I live, but then corrects himself, but not I, but Christ living in me. You've seen the dead side of a believer, deaf, dumb, blind and without feeling to the sinful world, but now he says he lives. His life is produced in him by virtue of Christ's being in him and his being in Christ. Though the Christian may be insignificant and possessed of little grace, yet still, if he be truly a believer, Jesus lives in him beautiful image that he uses. A Christian ought to be a living photograph of the Lord Jesus, a striking likeness of his Lord. When men look at him, they should see not only what the Christian is, but what the Christian's master is, for he should be like his master. So the life that is in Christ is the life that is in God's people, and it works out in us. Truly, we that live unto God feel the life of God within. We desire to be more and more subdued under the dominant spirit of Christ, that our manhood may be a palace for the well-beloved. Now, and Spurgeon says, have you got your Bibles open? Can you see where I'm getting this from? The life which I let now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Here is another point of contact. Every moment, the life of the Christian is to be a life of faith. We make a mistake when we try to walk by feeling or by sight. So we need to be holding fast, to walk straight on, believing in Christ every moment, believing your sins to be forgiven, even when you see their blackness, believing that you are safe when you seem in the utmost danger, believing that you're glorified with Christ when you feel as if you were cast out from God's presence. This is the life of faith, holding fast to what Christ has said, even if our feelings or the circumstances seem to militate against it. Other points of unity. He loved me. Believer, get a hold of the precious truth that Christ loved you eternally. The all-glorious Son of God chose you and espoused you unto himself, that you might be his bride throughout eternity. And then he gave himself for me, not all that he had only, but himself himself not just a laying aside of his glory and his splendor and his life, but the yielding up of his very self. O oh, heir of heaven, says the preacher, Jesus is yours at this moment, having given himself once for you upon the tree to put your sin away. At this moment, he gives himself to be to you to be your life, your crown, your joy, your portion, your all in all. You have found out yourself to be a separate personality and individuality. But here's the other side of it. Beautiful balance. That personality is linked with the person of Christ Jesus so that you are in Christ and Christ is in you by a blessed indissoluble union. You are knit together forever and ever. That's the uh, the emphasis then. Uh, Spurgeon's brought out the individuality, the personality in the first case, wanting to make sure that that we haven't missed that, but now he's emphasizing, and this is what he means by that interweaving, that there is such an intimacy of union between Christ and you that you cannot be considered of as existing apart from one another. And then lastly, the text describes the life which results from this blended personality, and he's going to do the same again. I'm going to go over the text I'm going to see what the text says to us about these things. The life that you now have is a new life. Crucified, yet you live. Crucified, then dead. Crucified, then the old life put away. Whatever life a crucified man has must now be a new life. Upon the old life, sentence of death has been pronounced. That carnal mind, enmity against God, is doomed to die. Now that's a a wonderful reality. It's a reminder that in Christ the old is gone and it has gone for good. We we're, we're moving on. And Spurgeon says now that having put away that old life, your new life is a very strange one. You're crucified but you do live. What a contradiction. The Christian's life is a matchless riddle. No worldling that is, no one who still belongs to this fallen age can comprehend it. Even the believer himself cannot understand it. He knows it, but as to solving all its enigmas, he feels that to be an impossible task. Dead, yet alive. Crucified with Christ, and yet at the same time risen with Christ in newness of life. He says, don't expect the world to understand that and to embrace you because of it. But it's... It's going to be a curious thing in the eyes of the world. If you yourself don't always grasp all that's involved, how will those who know nothing of spiritual reality? And then this wonderful life resulting in the blended personality. And I think he means here again that the the unity of those two uh, different persons, Christ and you, that blended personality of the believer and the son of God is a true life. This is expressed in the text. Nevertheless, I live. Yes, I live as I've never lived before. He says it's a it's a vivification. It's a lifting up. The man who truly lives is the believer. Are you less active because a Christian? God forbid. Become less industrious. Find less opportunities for the manifestation of my natural and spiritual energies? God forbid. To be in Christ is to be spiritually energised. If ever a man should be like a sword too sharp for the scabbard, with an edge which cannot be turned, it should be the Christian. He should be like flames of fire burning his way. Live while you live. Let there be no drivelling and frittering away of time. Live so as to demonstrate that you possess the noblest form of life. Then it's a life of self-abnegation, self-emptying. I live, yet not I Lowliness of mind is part and parcel of godliness. He who can take any credit to himself knows not the spirit of our holy faith. Self-humiliation is the native spirit of the true-born child of God. And then, when you're in Christ, you become a man of one idea. Is the believer's soul ruled by two things? No, he knows only one. Christ lives in me. Two tenants in the chamber of my soul? No, one Lord and Master I serve. This is the root of zeal. This is the the heart of devotion. We belong now to Christ. He sits alone on the throne of our heart. And then, to sum up much in little, the child of God has within him the Christ life. But how shall I describe that asks the preacher Christ's life on earth was the divine mingled with the human such is the life of the christian there's something divine about it it's a living incorruptible seed which abides forever Spurgeon again is trying to make sure here that the the connections are properly made the christian is a man among men in all that is manly he labels to excel Yet he's not as other men are, but wears a hidden nature which no mere worldling understands. Picture the life of Christ on earth, beloved, and that is what the life of God in us ought to be and will be in proportion as we are subject to the power of the Holy Spirit. We are then partakers of the divine nature. That's Spurgeon's basis for saying this, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. You understand then at this point Spurgeon's dealing with profound theology here and by that I don't just mean profound doctrine but profound experience, faith and life of the the richest and deepest kind, trying to emphasize something of what it means for the believer to be fully united to Jesus Christ, brought into union with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection so that we have died in Christ to all that to which Christ is dead and we live in Christ to all that for which Christ himself lives. He says then that uh, God is uh, working in us this life of a real man because we live in the flesh. The monks and the nuns who run away from the world for fear its temptation should overcome them and seclude themselves for the sake of greater holiness are as excellent soldiers, he says, as those who retire to the camp for fear of being defeated. Are we light? Are we salt? Well, the salt of the earth should be well rubbed into the meat, and so the Christian should mingle with his fellow men, seeking their good for edification. We need to engage with the people who are around us. We need to show that life which is in us among others. Whatever your trades then may be, faith is to be taken into your daily callings and that is alone the truly living faith which will bear the practical test. You are not to stop at the shop door and take off your coat and say farewell to Christianity till I put up the shutters again. That is hypocrisy, but the genuine life of the Christian is the life which we live in the flesh by faith of the Son of God. To conclude then, the life which comes out of the blended personality of the believer and Christ is a life of perfect love. And again, he's not saying that we lose our personality or that Christ loses his personality or that we become some kind of uh, amalgam or mixture I'm not quite me and Christ isn't just him no the emphasis is that there are these two individuals he gave himself for me and he remains he and me remains I Christus et ego Christ and I but there is now this union between the two and it is an indissoluble union So the question then becomes, in this life of perfect love, what can I do for him? The new life is a life of holy security, for if Christ loved me, who can destroy me? It's a life of holy wealth, for if Christ gave his infinite self to me, what can I want? It's a life of holy joy, for if Christ be mine, I have a well of holy joy within my soul. It's the life of heaven, for if I have Christ, I have that which is the essence and soul of heaven you get the sense here uh if you look at the the text itself there are uh these uh, uh italics then that Spurgeon uses in the text to mark out his his different transitions I think uh, usually I'm inclined to think that they're indications of the headings that he would have had on that little sheet of paper in front of him. And it's absolutely delightful, but you're thinking, Boy oh boy, you've you've just got far too much to say. It's bubbling out of you on this occasion, and he's trying to manage it so that it stays within the confines of this one sermon. Of course, as so often he he finishes by saying, You don't understand this, some of you. You've got no sense of what this life is and I want you to have it and to have it in Christ and in Christ alone. But what he's tried to do in the main through the course of this sermon is to bring that profoundest theology, that most marvellous truth that in Christ, the believer does not lose himself, but rather finds himself if i can use that language that he comes to the fullest and truest expression of the humanity that god has given him that he is enlivened in christ having died to sin and now lives out of that relationship with the lord jesus christ it is then such a comforting and such a challenging sermon it's 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 really bringing the practicalities, not just doctrine. When we say profound, so often I think we think, "Oh, it's just very clever teaching," or it's or it's very deep or difficult. No, this is profound experience, the closeness of the relationship which we sustain to our Redeemer. So Spurgeon's told us it's a high peak. He's tried to see so much from the top, and we might say, "Well." yeah we we've not climbed to the summit ourselves no but it is worth still going as high as we can i hope you've enjoyed uh, working with us through this sermon today it's number 781 in the uh, the new the metropolitan tabernacle pulpit We've been reading this week 7.80 to 7.86. You can join us at Reading Spurgeon. You can go to mediagratii.org podcasts to find out a little bit more information. And if you're enjoying some of these things, please do uh, give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It makes a real difference. And apparently, especially if you're living outside the United States, it, it really helps if you're uh, recommending us, if you're reviewing us, if you're... Uh, sharing some of these things so uh, please do not not just because we're asking but we hope because you value what it is you're learning and we're learning too we trust that by it Christ will be pleased to glorify his grace in each one of us to the praise of his great name thanks again for listening and I hope to be back with you again in the future for more from the heart of Spurgeon